when someone gives you feedback, the first thing to say in your head is they care about me. And when you change that mindset and you put yourself on the receive mode versus the defensive mode, uh, A, you're going to hear the feedback and you're going to incorporate it into your approach um, or be able to respond to it most effectively. When you operate in the, this person is giving me a gift, it may not be a gift that I want, and I'm going to take this as a way that they're saying, I care about you and I'm taking time to give you feedback. Hard mindset shift because, again, many of us grew up not being taught how to take feedback because we thought that meant we were doing something wrong. Um, it's actually an affirmation of how much that person or that company or that organization cares about us. Hi, I'm Ted Blosser, CEO and co-founder of WorkRamp, where we're redefining the corporate learning space with the world's first all-in-one learning cloud for employee and customer learning. Welcome to the Learn Podcast, where we learn from the biggest leaders in SaaS and hear what makes them successful. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Learn With Podcast. We have an amazing guest today, L. David Kingsley, the Chief People Officer at Intercom. David, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, let's get started. Why don't you give us a little bit of an elevator pitch on your career, but today we'll spend most of the time on what it means to be a modern chief people officer. And I'll ask you a few questions around that topic. But before we jump into it, give us a give us that elevator pitch. The elevator pitch. Well, the first and most important thing is that I'm the I'm the proud spouse and partner of my wife, Erin, uh, and dad to our three kids who are four, three, and ten months. Um, those are those are my all the time everyday jobs. So shout out to all the working parents out there. Um, and uh, that's what gives my life a lot of meaning and purpose. Um, on the professional side, I'm the Chief People Officer of Intercom. Um, you can find us at Intercom uh, and any website you go to where there's a little smile in the bottom right-hand corner, you can kind of see it on my patch here. You click on that and you can interact with um, our customers um, on their website through a chat interface. We just went GA um, with Finn, uh, chat GPT powered um, tool, which is great. Um, our customers are interacting with their customers and solving cases much faster than ever um, with the power of AI. Um, so really cool company, uh, just over 10, 11 years old, um, venture funded, uh, based in San Francisco, Irish founded. Um, so our largest single office is in Dublin, Ireland. Um, so truly global company, but uh, driving what we believe is the future of customer interactions uh, and having a lot of fun doing it. Well, we're a very happy customer of Intercom. I was actually just in there uh, yesterday in the interface. We we're making new product tours. Um, and maybe we should, I don't know if we turn on Finn. Is Finn GA? Can we, GA, we, can, GA, we can turn GA on? All right. Literally, literally days ago. So previously there was a, a, a limited beta, but we're GA now. And so come on in, the water's warm. All right. We got to call our sales rep. Um, Excellent. Well, you have such an amazing background through many companies like Salesforce, Velocity, Alteryx. We'll get into that too. But as I mentioned at the top of the discussion, we'll actually talk about, I would call it the core pillars of chief people of the chief people officer role or VP of HR role, and actually just get your take on each of them, uh, especially in this uh, market focus on efficiency and productivity. The first area or the first pillar I want to start in is the traditional HR business partner role. We all kind of know this role. This is um, even even when I uh, was at my previous company, Box, that was one of my strong partners I had in the business. Uh, but tell us about how this role has evolved, how you look at it now, and where do you see it heading uh, in the future? And then I'll jump into the next pillars uh, afterwards. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I love the question, Ted, and you're right. Um, the HR business partner world is one that's near and dear to my heart. It's what I grew up in in HR. Um, and for the VP of HR or the CPO or the CHRO, whatever term you call it, um, that person I do think of as the HR business partner to the CEO. Um, that is, uh, you know, sort of there's probably three or four job ones, but I would say that's a that's a critical job one. Um, and the similar roles uh, apply, the rules apply to an HRBP to the CEO. Um, it's things like, you know, know that client's business. You got to learn it inside and out. Um, have their best interest at heart. Check your ego at the door. There's no agenda that the HRBP has other than their client's agenda. Um, and so I think all those same rules apply. So for anybody who's in, in a CPO role or moving into one, who's come up through the HRBP ranks or knows that role, um, it's it's not a big reach to say I'm the HRBP for the CEO um, and to and to go from there. So I'd say that's the first part. Um, the second one is um, remembering, and this is a little bit of the evolution of the CPO role itself that's really kind of shifted. Remembering that um, the principle of first team, and I think it's Patrick Lencioni, um, one of his concepts of what is your first team, and the first team of the CPO is the exec team. It is the C-suite. Um, as it is, as I would say for every CXO, um, you know, on the CEO's staff, um, is your number one job is to be a member of the exec team. Uh, your very close second job is as the head of HR for the company. Um, but every one of the CEO's directs needs to show up at the table as a, an executive in the organization, helping to drive the business forward. Full stop. That is our number one job. Um, I think previously, many of us, maybe myself included, um, had 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 that a little bit more in balance, or maybe at sometimes letting the uh, employee ombuds person maybe edge ahead by a nose to say, I'm here representing the voice of the employees, the voice of the people. And in most cases, the answer is no, you know, CPOs are not a union rep. Um, and yeah. all love for the union reps out there who do really amazing work for their companies and their members. That's not the CPO's job. The CPO's job is to represent the interests of the company and be the trusted advisor of the CEO and a member of the executive team. Um, who happens to lead the people function of the business, just like your chief product officer leads the product function of the business. Um, so too does the CPO need to stand up and, and be seen as that. Um, I would say there's an evolution, and I'll give you, uh, Ted, a continuum on that, that uh, HR as necessary evil, we'll put that over here on this part of the spectrum, uh, then HR as uh, critical enabler, call that in the middle of the spectrum, and yep. then HR as trusted advisor. And um, there's been a journey there. Um, my mother was also in the discipline many years ago, and they, they still called it. And even uh, I was in the Navy for eight years as a reservist, reserve officer, still called the personnel department, right? So that's really kind of a necessary evil. Like, hey, I'll reach out to you only when I absolutely need you. I want as little of that as possible. Please just go away, right? That's yep. the kind of necessary <laughs> evil world. It's important, but it's not somebody I want to see every day. Then the critical enabler is, hey, you do some important stuff and I know I need you um, and I value that. The trusted advisor, though, that role for a CPO or even for an HR organization is when the client or the CEO says, we're having a great discussion. Uh, I'm going to pause it right here because I want my CPO in the room or I want my HR business partner in the room or I want my talent advisor in the room. And we can't progress this discussion until we have a full team talking about this. Um, I think for the most progressive organizations, the most forward-leaning leaders who understand that culture is the secret sauce in companies, most of us, right? We don't make widgets. 
uh, we are knowledge workers. Many of uh, our companies, certainly a lot of your listeners, um, certainly you know, WorkRamp and, <laughs> and Intercom and all of our companies, we're all knowledge filled with knowledge workers. And so um, having your CPO or your HR business partner in the room to help make those decisions, um, I think is a critical part. And that's really where that trusted advisor role lives um, on that spectrum. So there's a, a few lenses uh, you know, on the job as I, as I see it. That's very cool. When you think about, I love, love that spectrum of basically graduating to the trusted advisor. Does that, has that taken time for you to gain that trusted advisor status? I know you were at Salesforce for a long time mm-hmm. and I think you just built up a lot of street cred, probably moving through the organization, but then you mm-hmm. drop in a CPO into Altrix, drop in at Intercom. Is this a gradual move you you have to make where you have to build trust to get there? Mm-hmm. Or do you try to jump in and say, look, I'm your trust advisor from day one. Start treating me that way. What's your advice for new CPOs um, that, are, that are starting in those roles now? Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that um, I like to say that every day is an interview. Every day is an interview. That never do we in any part of the business, in any of our functions, get to rest on our laurels. And I think there's the question today, um, especially today in a lot of our businesses in this market is what have you done for me lately? Um, so I'll give you an example of that. Previously, um, you know, new, new CXO joining your team uh, as the CEO, the strategy might have been, hey, I'm going to take the first you know, 90 days to learn. I'm going to listen. I'm going to learn. I'm going to meet everybody. The world has shifted now that I would say within two to four weeks, um, your new CPO, your new head of HR um, should bring some value to the company, hmm. solve something, tackle something that's been keeping you up at night. Um, and that's incumbent, I would offer on the CEO themselves who knows their business cold to say to the new CPO, um, here's what's keeping me up at night. I don't have time to tackle this. Here are some ideas that I have. Go solve this and make it digestible, snackable, I like to call it. The person can really sink their teeth into that to get steeped in the organization that we don't have the time or luxury to um, just learn and ingest for the first 90 or 100 days, we've got to sink our teeth into it and help start solving things. I think it does two things. A, it tackles something that's keeping you up at night in the business that's delivering value from day one, but also B, um, those first impressions is, wow, this person is coming here to help us, to be of service. Um, and, and that's just a little bit of a shift, I think, in, in the world and what, what is required uh, in the market today. Um, that is an evolution. Um, than than what it, it previously was, and um, I think we would all agree that the pace of change is, is doing nothing but accelerating uh, in our businesses, and the scrutiny that all of us are under, whether you're a public company or a private company, um, has never been greater. So this is definitely not a time for the faint of heart. Um, for those of us uh, in the Western world in the U.S., we're eating our Wheaties in the morning. Uh, I don't know if anybody <laughs> still eats cereal, but I still like that analogy of you got to get a good breakfast, get started for the day, and, and really get after it. Love that. So the main takeaway is immediate impact, build some trust on there, start building from that. Let me go into the second pillar I want to talk about. And this is, I would like to get your take in this current environment. If you look back in the, in the, let's call it the the tech bubble that we were, we were both in, in of, of the big bull market, let's call it ending in 20, mid 2022. Yeah. Where talent development was something that we were just tossing promotions, tossing money, tossing mm-hmm. new projects at people. And the whole market, especially in tech, has shifted into mm-hmm. more efficiency, fewer mm-hmm. promotions, fewer pay raises. Give us your take on how you look at talent development in this new market, 
for mm-hmm. example, do you see this as a temporary thing or do you think of this as a full shift that we need to kind of all adapt to kind of mm-hmm. moving forward when it comes to the talent development pillar mm-hmm. of the CPO, what's called the CPO office? Yeah. Yeah. Candidly, I think, I think talent development has never been more important than it is today. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, in the last, and I, I kind of bucketed in HR 1.0, HR 2.0, and HR 3.0. And we'll call HR 1.0, like, uh, call it up until 2019. Uh, so call it, you know, 2013 to 2019. Let's rewind the clock back till then. Um, uh, that was this era where we were all competing for talent um, with the big dogs, right? We were having to throw as many uh, employee perks out there as possible. It's like we do, you know, dog walking at work. We'll do your dry cleaning, unlimited avocados, <laughs> ping pong tables, nap pods, that was my favorite one, Ted. Nap pods. Like, I get it. We all love a good siesta, but like, I'm going to build out a part of, uh, you know, $100 a square foot. Uh, in my case, it was in downtown San Francisco to put a nap pod in. Like, oh, heesh. We're probably not going to do that anymore. So that was kind of a HR 1.0, let's say. Um, and, and all love for a good nap, but probably not going to be part of the solution going forward. HR 2.0 was call it 2020 to 2022, um, or as I refer to it as the snow day. Uh, because Ted, if you're like anything like me, uh, when COVID hit, uh, we said, okay, everybody go home for the week and this COVID thing will blow over. Uh, we'll all get back to work on Monday. <laughs> and sure enough, boy, was I wrong. Two years later, we all start coming back to the office and we're starting to see, you know, folks coming to the office a couple, three days a week. Um, and, and that was 2.0. And there was really an interesting world that we were in there where the barriers to entry and exit to our companies dropped to zero. Uh, employees would inter- be in a staff meeting on a Monday interview with another company on Tuesday, get an offer on Thursday and resign on Friday. And and we'd go, what just happened there? And they're like, yeah, I'm changing jobs. And it's like, you've been here nine months. And they're like, yeah, I think I'm going to go do something new. And the new employer was great. Okay, you've been there nine months, no problem. We'd love to have you over here. And there was this race where almost like those cartoons when people's feet start going so fast, they make like a little whirl ball. That's kind of how it felt in some of these organizations in, in HR 2.0, where we were just chasing and, and grabbing as many staff as we could because we were scaling and growing. And as you said, that was in a zero interest rate environment where um, for pre-public companies, the you know funding was accessible. Venture capitalists were, were looking to fund lots of new businesses. Um, and we were growing at breakneck paces that some would say was maybe perhaps unsustainable. So HR 3.0 comes and we kind of near we're in the end of the pandemic for, for a functional, practical purpose. We're getting back to work. And what I think that's left us in is this world where knowledge workers now view themselves, ourselves, as members of the gig economy. And I know that's kind of a provocative statement uh, because we tend to think of folks who are doing, you know, DoorDash, Uber, Instacart, et cetera, as members of the gig economy. I think knowledge workers have evolved their thinking as well. And the reason I say that is last you know, fall and maybe even into the first part of this year, a lot of companies did some pretty big and abrupt layoffs. Um, focus on profitability. Um, you know, that rule of 40 took a much different turn, whereas you could be you know, growing at 50% and negative 10% profitability. It's like, well, still a rule of 40, check. No longer, right? We've got to be mindful of that. And every company's under that pressure now. And so a lot of companies, you know, trimmed the cost um, and did so no fault of the workers. It's just, hey, you know, we just don't need that division, that department, that set anymore. Um, and so we'll excuse you from the company, you know, give you a severance package and off you go. That reminded workers that at the end of the day, um, these are businesses that are for-profit organizations, most of them. 
And um, whereas back in HR 1.0, we probably talked a lot about, you know, come join the family, come join yep. the company as family. And, and now it's kind of like, mm, no, we're not really a family. We're a company. We're a corporation. And that's okay. I mean, this is a free market economy. We're in business to make money and deliver value for our shareholders and our stakeholders. Um, and I think we as knowledge workers, workers generally were reminded of that uh, not too long ago. And so now this calculus has shifted whereby employees are saying, what's in it for me? If I join your company, um, do your values align with mine? Am I bought into your mission? And how am I going to grow and develop here? Well, that plays right back into the role of learning and development inside organizations that in our employee and our employer value proposition, we've got to be really clear about what's going to be in it for you in this company, in this role, in this quarter. Uh, because that's as far as that employee is concerned about is where am I going to grow and develop in this role if I take this job or I take this promotion even. Um, you know, I've heard tell of, you know, folks saying, you know, I'm good on the current role. I don't want that promotion. I like where I am now. I know this job. I know how to do it. I feel safe here um, and I'm I'm protected. And if we want to promote someone or challenge them to grow, we've got to tell them how we're going to support them. And that's where, you know, learning and development comes into play. So never has been a more important time than now because of the way I think that workers self-perceive and how they're making decisions about where they're going to take their time, energy, and labor um, in organizations. And the ones that have an answer to that um, from a learning perspective are the ones that are going to take talent in, in what is still and what will be a competitive market. It's a really good transition. I was going to ask you about the learning and development pillar next. And maybe I'll preface this, the question with also kind of a, let's call it a subsection of frequency as well too. So mm -hmm. in this, in that, in that HR 2.0 world, you were talking about, um, actually no, HR 1.0 in your, in your framing, this was happening frequently. And I'm assuming now it's hard to do things like toss as many resources or give as many promotions now to people in this new area, but you talked about in this new era, but you talked about how it's so important. How do you kind of how do you kind of combine the two needs of like, hey, providing great L&D? And I want to dive into what great L&D means, mm -hmm. but also when you, let's say, have fewer means to do it mm -hmm. uh, from a, literally a company resource and cash perspective. Yeah. How do you reconcile those two? And, and then we'll dive into the details yeah. of what you actually do as well. Yeah, I think that um, the, the focus on, uh, this is a new term I learned recently, on numeracy. Um, financial literacy. I'd never heard that before, but numeracy and that all of us in our roles, especially the chief people officers are being called to be more numerate than ever. Um, and that means a much closer alignment with our CFOs in organizations uh, that every decision we make, every dollar we invest needs to be very clearly articulated to an ROI. Uh, gone are the days where uh, we can put out a program or an initiative that we think is just you know, something good to do. We've got to be able to say, here's the ROI on this. And here's our projection for that. We're going to lay out this much money. Here's what's going to happen next. And then here's where it's going to pay back in terms of employee engagement, efficiency, productivity, retention, you know, shareholder value, stakeholder value, you know, uh, ACV, ARR, whatever term you want to use. We've got to quantify, you know, each element of the business, everything that we're spending on and make sure that it ties very clearly back to a return on that investment. Uh, so that numeracy is more important than ever. Are you seeing, sorry to interrupt there, what I was going to say is, are you seeing yourself even get into modeling now 
uh, Excel sheets when promoting your programs that you didn't previously do? Or have you always done that? And now, now it's finally caught up with everyone else. Yeah, probably a little bit of both. I mean, Ted, I describe myself as a, I was in management consulting for the first 13 years of my career. Um, so I just, I entered HR, you know, 10 or 12 years ago proper. I was in organization design change management as a management consultant. And so I describe myself as an analyst who got old and lost his hair. Um, so I've always tried to make sure that, um, you know, programs pencil uh, when you're bringing them to market, because that was what my clients wanted. You didn't go to a client and say, hey, we're going to propose that we plus up the team, introduce this program or project, in, and I'm going to invoice you for that. And the client goes, oh, yeah, I don't care if it actually drives any value for my business, right? The client always wanted to know what's the ROI for me. So I kind of grew up in that world. Um, at the same time, I'm redoubling efforts today uh, as a CPO at doing that. And, and that's just so critical um, that the entire executive team and the CFO, importantly, as a key stakeholder, understand and support that. Um, and our colleagues across the aisle on the finance team can really be helpful in that because we want to make sure that we're modeling in the way that they're modeling ROI for the rest of the company, whether it's a marketing initiative, top of funnel, or adding more account executives to the sales team or adding more software engineers to the, you know, large language model, you know, build out organization, whatever it is, um, we got to make sure that we're speaking the language of the business. Um, and that, that usually comes in terms of dollars and cents and ROI. So uh, that's, yeah, that's never more important to be, to be numerate in these organizations. Hey everyone, we're on right now with L. David Kingsley, the Chief People Officer at Intercom. It's such a great discussion, but I want to interrupt for a second and talk a little bit about WorkRamp. Intercom is also a WorkRamp customer leveraging our platform to drive all of its L&D programs. If you want to learn more about what we're building and the learning cloud technology that we have, you can visit us at www.workramp.com. Now back to the episode. Well, let's talk about the L&D pillar as a whole. And thanks, thanks again for being a, a WorkRamp customer from an L&D yeah. perspective. What programs are you finding are the most impactful today under the L&D umbrella? Are there any unique programs you've rolled out lately or are there tried and true programs that you would recommend to the audience? Like, hey, these are the, the base programs you need to be knocking out of the park right now. Give us your take yeah. on L&D programs. Yeah, I think that L&D programs, um, when they're successful, and there are a lot of them that, that really are, and, and a lot of your customers using your platform and your content are doing that, um, are thoughtful about and reflective of two things. Uh, the, the evolved workforce um, and the generations we have and truly how adults learn. Now, adult learning theory is not a new thing for us to think about in L&D. Uh, intergenerational workforce has gotten more and more, especially as millennials have become, you know, now the, the majority of our workforces. Um, most of us as adult learners uh, don't learn best by sitting in a, a cold conference room for five days, eating that little cheese Danish thing that none of us would eat in our normal day-to-day -day <laughs> lives. But somehow you put me in a corporate conference room. I'm like, I need four cheese Danishes at 1030 on a Tuesday. I'm going to go ahead and eat all of those right now. Um, it's just a really unnatural environment. And it's unnatural for our bodies. It's not how we, we, we work. We don't just sit one space for five days. Um, and it's not how we learn. Um, I think of, uh, you know, in terms of snackability, um, learning today is much more user-driven in terms of how do I best learn. And in some cases, it may be I'm an, I'm, I, I learn by audio. And I learn at 1.25x speed on content. And I want to listen to it. And I listen to it while I'm, exercising or walking the dog or commuting or what have you. 
Other folks might, you know, do it in snippets and they want visuals with their learning and they want to do it in five minute increments between meetings that they block off, you know, two or three times in a day that way they want to consume content in a way that then lets them be thoughtful about how they're going to apply that. Um, and then most importantly, and this hasn't changed, but I think it's good for a revisitation is it's got to have leadership sponsorship. It's got to be said by the leadership in the organization all the way up to someone like you, Ted, to the CEO who's saying, this is a priority for us uh, because I want to grow our workforce and develop them again, back to the employer value proposition in these, this, to these knowledge workers in what is now the knowledge gig economy. I've got to prove to our people why they're going to grow and develop here. And I want to deliver on that promise. And I want to deliver it to them in a modality and with content that's going to resonate and help them grow, that they're going to say, this place cares about me. It's investing in me. And oh, by the way, I'm getting better at my job because of the content I'm consuming, because it's delivered to me in a way that I best consume content and I get to personalize it, right? So we're all in this, this Netflix generation now where I want to have my queue. I want it to be curated. I want to upvote and downvote content. I want it to be served up to me. Um, and I want to consume it on my own terms and my own way that I'm going to do best. Um, maybe with or without cheese danishes, you know, those may be optional. Um, but I think about it, like when you go into, you know, the, the Apple store, for example, uh, and it's the person in the colorful shirt, they greet you, they route you to the part of the store that you need, and you have this really customized tailored experience. And Ted, if you're like me, I, I've never spent a thousand dollars so fast in my life as walking in an Apple store. Like it's like, <laughs> like four and a half minutes. And I walk out with this little bag with the cute little rope handle. And I'm like, I just dropped a grand. Never. I mean, I, for anything else in my life, when I'd spend $1,000, I would have like a six week, you know, spreadsheet, the kids would be involved, there'd be a whiteboard at home, I'd be explaining to my wife what I'm doing. Not at the Apple store, they've made it so smooth in the way that I buy and consume content or products. Juxtapose that with your last trip to the Department of Motor Vehicles. You know, bless those good people who are doing the Lord's work for our government all around all around the country, all around the world. That's not a really tailored, customized personal experience, right? It's a very different thing. And so I look forward to going to the Apple store. I try and defer going to the DMV as long as I can and do most of it online, thankfully, here in California nowadays, uh, because of the way that I, as a consumer, consume content. And I think as we think about the learning and development pillar, how are we being responsive to the modern customer, modern consumer experience in what our our content consumers and, and, and product consumers want in how they learn and grow. If you had to say to the audience, the one program, and we kind of tie it back to the ROI statement you had earlier too, the one program you need to nail from an L and D perspective, and this could mm -hmm. be something like a leadership development program, just as an example, you don't have to answer it that way. What's the one program you would say L&D leaders or CPOs need to make sure they nail or is probably the most impactful in this market today? Wow. The number one most impactful. How to receive feedback. Mm. Not how to give feedback, how to receive feedback. And the reason I say that is and I'm, I'm going to generalize a little bit here, and I'm going to include myself in this, frankly. Um, much of the workforce, the way we grew up, was being told that we were great at whatever we did. And I know it, it's kind of a, a, a little bit of a, you know, a meme, but it's the everybody got a trophy, right? When I played t-ball when I was, whatever, five years old, everybody got a trophy. There are no winners. We're all winners. Everyone wins. And going through school... And even you know into the university space, there was an emphasis, and for very good reasons in many cases, on 
affirmation of effort, an affirmation of you did your best, you know, great, great, great input into the system. You tried your best, like how you thought about it, et cetera, a lot of affirmation. And we've addressed a lot of, not all the way, but we've addressed a lot of what were development areas in terms of child and adolescent, you know, psychological development by being affirmative of people as they're growing. And I think we're getting better about that as a society. And that's good. I want to affirm that. And uh, when we come into business, it's not workramp.org, it's workramp.com, right? You're a for-profit business driving value for your shareholders and stakeholders. And employees in all of our organizations need to be given feedback about how they're doing. And oftentimes that needs to be constructive feedback. So the more that we can learn how to learn or learn how to take feedback and incorporate that in a way that we know we're being affirmed when we get feedback and that person or leader or organization is affirming their investment in us by giving us feedback, especially when it's constructive, and to perceive it that way and then incorporate it into the work that we're doing, um, I think that's the that's a hallmark of a learning organization um, when it's filled with people who embrace the learning journey and embrace the ability to, to get feedback uh, as they grow and scale. David, that's such a good answer. And even at Workfront, we spent a lot of time on that even recently. And the one interesting insight I had was that actually helps in your personal life a ton is, ah. is you get it in this business context. But what I realize is when I parlay it into my personal life, getting feedback, for example, mm-hmm. from my spouse, yeah. from my wife, and even, even my kids, it's like, all right, you actually, <laughs> you're not always the smartest person in the room. You're usually not the smartest person in the room, but actually parlays really well into other aspects of your life, not just the professional context, but actually originated for me personally, originated more from a professional standpoint. So Mm -hmm. I love that answer, David. All right. We're almost at about time. I'm going to go into what we call the learn rapid fire around here. What I'm going to do is ask you a few questions. I got to hydrate. I got to hydrate for this. (laughs) I'll ask you a few questions. Give me a one, two line answer for each. Um, This is a tradition that we do. So the first one is what is one podcast book blog, which you've learned the most from, or even that you're, Mm -hmm. you're reading now? Um, you know, there's one, uh, that I'm reading now. I think it's been out for a little while, but it's, it's good to read again. Um, uh, it's called breathe and it's a book about the importance of our breath and it's all about nose breathing. And this is something that many societies around the world have known for years, but somehow on our journey, we've all become, or many of us have become mouth breathers and the power of knowing your breath and being mindful of your 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 body space as you're working and working out and living um i think that mind body connection uh we've lost a little touch with that and regaining it is a good thing for our health and well-being you know it's interesting while you're saying that i was like i i think i'm a mouth breather do you even notice i'm a, I'm a big i'm a big time <laughs> mouth breather like in every really sense of the word like, what what am i <laughs> great answer i will check that out all right next question if you can learn from one person uh dead or alive who would you learn from if you could choose? Uh, my my mother's mother, my grandmother. I never met her. She passed away before I was born. Um, first generation American, raised six children. Her husband died, um, you know, pretty early, and so she was she was in charge of it all. Um, and the anecdote is, she used to make the kids' clothes out of flour sacks. Um, so she wow. would sew them at night when the kids were in bed. And I just think about that kind of resolve and grit. Um, I certainly don't have it, but I'd love to just hear from her. Um, how did you do that? And, and what did you think about and how did you stay focused? Um, so one of the first kind of examples of a great executive, um, was my grandmother, even though I never got to, got to know her. Such a good answer. All right. I'll close you, uh, off with this one. So if you had 
one piece of career advice you could give the audience, what would it be? You've had such a illustrious career and you're still going. What's the one big piece of advice you would give? I'm going to tie back to the answer I gave you on that last question around the learning thing. And this is something I'm working on myself. So I do not have this all figured out, but it is something that I'm, I'm really working on. Um, when someone gives you feedback, the first thing to say in your head is they care about me. And when you change that mindset and you put yourself on the receive mode versus the defensive mode, uh, A, you're going to hear the feedback and you're going to incorporate it into your approach um, or be able to respond to it most effectively when you operate in the, this person is giving me a gift. It may not be a gift that I want. And I'm going to take this as a way that they're saying, I care about you and I'm taking time to give you feedback. Hard mindset shift, because again, many of us grew up not being taught how to take feedback because we thought that meant we were doing something wrong. Um, it's actually an affirmation of how much that person or that company or that organization cares about us. Dave is such a good answer. Change in mindset is what we all need to do. I could apply that in my next three meetings today. So I'm definitely going to leverage that. So David, thanks so much for joining us today. This is an awesome conversation. It's so nice having you. Ted, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks for everything you're doing out for the world um, at WorkRamp. Um, it's just the, the work you're doing has never been more important. So thank you to all your colleagues who are driving value for us. Thanks. Thanks.